The North Carolina Healthcare Association is a proud sponsor of the Do Politics Better podcast. The association is a united voice for hospitals, health systems, and care providers to ensure they can offer high quality, lower cost care to all North Carolinians. Visit nchealthcare.org to learn more about how hospitals and health systems are working to make healthcare easier, more convenient, and with better outcomes. It's the Do Politics Better podcast. I'm Brian Lewis. And I'm Sky David. We've made it to February. That's right. Today's February 1. Yeah. I wonder if, what is it, the groundhog sees his shadow tomorrow? Mm-hmm. If he sees his shadow, it's eight more weeks of winter? Six? I, I think so. I'm not prepared for that. But <laughs> I need to go into spring. I'm tired <laughs> of it being cold. Same. I'm tired of winter. Once the last present is opened up on December 25th, Christmas Day, I am ready for spring. Yeah, I only need four days of winter. Yeah. I like that in North Carolina, like if it's cold, you know, at least in three to five business days, it's going to be warm again. Yeah. But the hopping back and forth between warm and cold has been tough. February, it's a short month. And then March, that is... But it is a leap year. That's true. People are saying, not me. (laughs) People. But people are saying we are in the simulation because 2020... Chiefs versus 49ers, Biden versus Trump, leap year, this year, same thing. So here we go. All right. We'll see if 2020 repeats itself. I hope not. Oh, yeah. Not the vid again. Yeah. Keep that. (laughs) Yeah. I've already had the flu. Are you feeling better? I'm, I'm getting there. Limped into the office yesterday. We laid down a little recording to promote. Uh, today's podcast that comes out this afternoon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, uh, you look great. I'm, I'm hoping you have get some rest this weekend. Okay. All right, let's get into the news. So we talked about that hearing about those two Senate districts in front of Judge Deaver and how the hearing had gone. And it seemed like he was not going to rule that those were unconstitutional. And in fact, on Friday, he ruled not unconstitutional, the maps will move forward. All right. So Tuesday, we had some news on the legal front as well around same day registration. So there was a court ruling that came out that said the way that that new elections bill 747, let's say you went in and registered to vote same day, and they try to verify your address by sending you something in the mail. If it comes back as undelivered, automatically your ballot does not count. And so the court said, hey, you have to have a way to appeal that, that you need a due process right there. And so on Tuesday, the State Board of Elections sent out how you're going to be able to do that. They sent that to federal court, and it's not clear whether or not the judge in that case is going to say, yep, that works for us, or no, it doesn't. But Those are the new rules. Not one, not two. We had three kind of legal cases moving this week. There was a fair election lawsuit and former North Carolina Supreme Court Justice Bob Orr is involved. That's right. He filed this lawsuit on Wednesday where 
essentially it's just saying, is there a constitutional right to fair elections? That's the impetus of the case. Seems like a Hail Mary to me, but again, I'm not a lawyer. What is he asking for? I mean, you want more than just, hey, do we have a right to fair elections? Is he asking for some sort of remedy on the... He's asking for some different districts to be thrown out, yeah. Okay. Well, we'll keep an eye on that. On the political front, not to say that courts are not political. Politics does creep into our courts. But uh, we had a lot of fun going through some of the campaign finance reports this week. This is the quarter ending December 31st, 2023. One legislator really stood out in his fundraising on the House side. Representative Destin Hall, the current rules chairman and likely next speaker, had a banner second half of 2023. He raised about $750,000. Wow. And if you look at that report, it looks as if uh, a lot of his attorney friends are very excited about him ascending to the speakership role. I know a lot of folks in Western North Carolina are excited. And I even heard this week that Appalachian State University, man, they are just about giddy to have (laughs) one of their alumni as Speaker of the House. What else stood out to you, Sky, as you were looking through reports yesterday? Interestingly enough, we know that that AG race is going to be huge this year. Jeff Jackson has about 1.83 million on hand. He raised over $2 million, which is a great haul. Dan Bishop raised 1.35 million and he has about 1.28 million on hand. So it looks tit for tat. Bishop versus Jackson just seems to be setting itself up to be one for the ages. But let's move on to Governor. That also got both of our attention. We were talking about it yesterday. Josh Stein, the likely Democratic nominee, brought in $5.7 million, and he has $11.5 million on hand, which is a lot of money. On the Republican side, the likely nominee, Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson, he raised $3.4 million, and he has $4.3 million on hand. Of course, this doesn't count the millions of dollars that we hear that is moving into the independent expenditure accounts. This is dark money. When I talk to political operatives on both sides, they all agree. This is a race that could cost a half a billion dollars in 2024. If you take the IEs and you take the campaign accounts, something to behold. All right, it was noticeable that in the lieutenant governor's race on the Democratic side, State Senator Rachel Hunt, who's, I think, presumed front runner on that Democratic side for LG, uh, she really seems to be hauling in the cash and leaving her opponents in that primary in the dust. Yeah, I got this from Brian Anderson on Twitter. She has more cash on hand after you take out her loans than all 11 GOP candidates combined. That's mm. a statement for sure. Over on the Republican side, that is a crowded field. And I don't know that we have determined whether anyone is a front runner. I think they're all kind of bunched together there between former Senator Deanna Ballard, uh, current Representative Jeffrey Elmore, former Chief of Staff to Dan Forrest, Hal Weatherman. 
And then you got to throw in Seth Woodall in Rockingham County. Sam Page, of course, is also from Rockingham County. What did that fundraising look like on their side of the primary for LG? Deanna Ballard has $194,000. Hal Weatherman, $190,000, so pretty close. Representative Elmore has $86,000. And then it drops down Alan Mashburn. He has $44,000, and Sam Page has $32,000. If we're looking at the money race, you know, and I think it's good logic to assume that the money determines a front runner. Now, you could make the case in an LG race, anything can happen, and it's hard to break through with all the other campaigns going on, but it looks as if Senator Ballard and uh, Hal Weatherman are your top two fundraisers. But again, 194000 Even if you look at Senator Hunt's 443000 is that enough to break through statewide race? Are you going to be able to go on TV? That's not a lot of mail. You got your built-in cost for your campaign. It's all just up in the air. Folks ask me, what do I think of this race and other Council of State races? And I really have no idea. Yeah. It's hard to tell. I have noticed that this week with the reporting period ending, that there were a lot of self-funders. Mm-hmm. A lot of people gave themselves loans. Yeah. We could go through the rest of the Council of State reports But nothing really sticks out. I mean, even if you look at the state treasurer race, uh, Representative Wesley Harris, he's a Democrat. He's got 147,000. And uh, I guess it is interesting. Gabe Esparza, Democrat, who's challenging Representative Harris, has $263,000 he raised. Uh, $50,000 was from, like he pointed out, was from himself. But still, that's a, I don't know this guy, but. uh, you know, putting money in. But anyway, we'll look at more of this. If there's something worth noting, we'll bring it up in a future podcast. Race of the week. This week, we're going to take you down to House District 82, Cabarrus County, which is a county north of Mecklenburg County. It's really a suburb of Mecklenburg County. We have a high energy race for the Republican nomination. Uh, for, for that House seat, currently held by Representative Kevin Crutchfield. He's a first-term legislator from Cabarrus County, and he is being challenged by Brian Echeverria. Now, that name might sound familiar because Brian Echeverria ran in 2022. He took on Diamond Staten Williams, who won that election. She's a Democrat, so she's in her freshman year. Uh, It was a nail-biter race. Uh, Went all the way down to the Friday after the uh, election uh, for provisional ballots, absentee ballots. We've heard in talking to folks in Cabarrus County that Brian Echeverria feels as if he was let down in the final days of that 2022 race. He has some grudges. And so he decided that he was going to challenge and is challenging Kevin Crutchfield. Now, this race is getting pretty ugly in Cabarrus County. It appears there have been some ads on social media. Yeah, a lot of the ads 
are directed at Brian Echeverria's business dealings. Some have not been very successful and have been documented in an ad, actually a few ads that seem to be having an impact on that race. Uh, By the way, we've been told from folks in Cabarrus County that they consider Representative Crutchfield the favorite. He is favored by the business community, and he is also the beneficiary of many independent expenditures that are being unleashed in Cabarrus County on behalf of Kevin Crutchfield. Of course, these are uncoordinated and, you know, we should probably dedicate a future podcast to how independent expenditures work. Now, Echeverria, he is a very dynamic candidate. He has been known to make presentations to the Cabarrus County School Board. He can use incendiary language. In fact, uh, we have heard from some folks who actually volunteered on his 2022 campaign that they were caught off guard by some of the terms he would use in referring to uh, certain people in Cabarrus County. They were really taken back by it. Uh, And a lot of folks feel that he could be somewhat of a liability for the Republican caucus. Now, uh, that remains to be seen. You know, some folks campaign a certain way and govern in another way. Recently, we've been seeing that Representative Crutchfield has been getting endorsements from his colleagues in the House. And, you know, we should point out that the Republican Party, just like the Democratic Party, usually has an official stand on staying out of primaries, and that is usually a wise thing to do. There are exceptions to that uh, unwritten rule, Uh, but it is noticeable to us that many of Representative Crutchfield's colleagues think a lot of him, his service, and the way he governs, and have put their name on endorsing him. So we'll continue to watch this race. This is one that will be decided on March 5th the primary. If you have a race that you would like for us to profile, dig a little deeper on, or you have information about a race you can share with us, uh, just get in contact with us on Twitter, email, or text. There is some intrigue around the way the Senate operates, and that extends both to within the building and the political realm. And this week we sat down with Dylan Watts of the Senate Republican Caucus to talk about that political side. The Do Politics Better podcast is supported by the North Carolina Travel Industry Association. Founded in 1955, NCTIA has a distinguished history of partnering with the North Carolina General Assembly to strengthen and preserve tourism in North Carolina. Visit nctia.travel for more information on how you can support your local tourism destination and the thousands of North Carolina jobs it creates. Dylan Watts, welcome to the podcast. So you're the caucus director for the Senate Republicans. Tell us, what is your day-to-day like? Uh, Hey, uh, (laughs) good question. I don't really think anybody knows, including myself. But yes, I'm the director of the Senate caucus. I think there's kind of two main job responsibilities. One is to protect the members and two is to win elections. And I think it's usually in that order too. Day-to-day depends. Uh, Off year, when it's not election time, it's a lot of we kind of turn into a customer service organization. We just do whatever members need, try to help them do what we can. Um, part-time therapist, listening to them, 
Um, especially once we get into September of a year and there's no budget, uh, we got to talk to a lot of people and make sure they're still happy and things are still moving. But election year, I guess it kind of starts before election year, but recruitment all the way through. So we try to, we recruit all the candidates, kind of come up with our game plan, get member buy-in, um, go through recruitment, get folks for seats we can win, seats we need to win. A lot of times we hope to get candidates for seats we can't win too, but um, to have a full slate and then we kind of handhold them all the way through. Um, we've got a team at the caucus and we do everything from all the general consulting with, with the political spending side to the fundraising and everything in between. And you answered to Senator Berger, I guess? Yeah, I mean, I, I answer to all the members, right? I mean, the goal is we, we work for all of them, our whole team, um, Burgers who hired us. So we, you know, I've worked for Burger my, I guess, whole career now. I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing, but um, so we, we, he's our direct boss and then we, we work for everybody though. Take us through how you got to this current position. Um, I was, uh, actually, when I was in high school, I, you know, like freshman year, sophomore year of high school, I knew I wanted to go study political science. Um, at the time, I thought I wanted to be a lobbyist. Mm. Um, nothing against y'all, but boy, was I wrong. <laughs> um, so I kind of, I had family that worked up in D.C. and um, kind of went up there and loved it and loved politics. And um, family was always uniquely politically active, um, or at least engaged, um, went to college and got an internship at a lobbying firm in Raleigh for one summer and then tried to go back and work for them the next summer. And they told me no, that I needed to go work the legislature. And so they kicked me over there and I got a phone call one day from, I was like sitting in class. I got a call from, uh, Amy Auth and Grant Brooks. who used to be Burgers old people. And the only thing I remember from that phone call was they, I'm sitting there in class and I answer it and they asked me, uh, Hey, you answer calls in class? Well, I walked out. I was like expecting <laughs> something I should okay. know. Um, and they asked me something. It was like, can you define the role of leadership in the legislature? I'm like a 19-year-old. It's like, I have no idea. And I made something up. They said, sounds great. Can you start in May? So I did that and then actually split that summer. I did um, here with Berger's office and then second half of the summer with, uh, up in, on the Hill in D.C. And I realized that I didn't like federal politics. I like state politics a lot more. Came back and kind of got stuck in. And... I did meet my wife um, back in, I can't remember if it was 2013 or 2014. She was actually interning for Bill Rabin at the time. Okay. Um, yeah, so small world. He's back transportation committee chair at that point. But he, um, if you ever asked Rabin today um, who he likes better, and I, I know Rabin very, very well. I've talked to him a lot, and he will tell you with a smile on his face, and he means it, that he thinks uh, my wife is so much better than I am. So it works <laughs> out. Um did that, graduated, and uh, got really lucky with timing. Um, there was a policy advisor spot in Berger's office that was, he was moving off in a month or two, so I got to come and kind of slot in there. Did that for about two years, two and a half years, and then joined the caucus, the political side, the campaign side. Um, I think it was December of 2017. Did the 2018 cycle, kind of working under Ray Martin and Jim Blaine, and then took over the, the caucus as director uh, for the 2020 cycle. Policy versus politics. You've done both. What do you prefer? Mm. Um, it's tough to say what I prefer. Okay. I, I think that if I went back and just did policy, I would miss the politics heavily. Uh, perfect example. So this past year, 2023, those first 10 months when y'all are in there, I mean, we're doing stuff, but there's a lot of times where I'm just missing the, the fund legislature. And I do mm. think it's you know, there's Burger lets has always let staff kind of be proactive in a way too, and to come up with ideas and to work with their members. And I mean, they all have a ton of trust and respect for the staff too. So they do give you kind of a leash to, to go find things and go think things up. And that was 
That was a lot of fun. I missed that. I don't know that I could pick one over the other, but I do think that I've carved out the political lane a little better maybe than the policy lane. Mm -hmm. Um, So all that to say, I I miss policy dearly. And if I had to choose one forever, I might go a little bit that way, but uh, I don't think I can ever get rid of the politics now. I want to go back. That's a non-answer answer. answer, No, no, I get it. I think I'm, I think I'm reading what you're saying here. I do want to ask you about leadership though. I know you said you made up an answer and I'm not asking you to recall your answer. But I am asking you to reflect a little bit on Senator Berger's leadership, because one thing that's noticeable is that when we talk to his staff, anyone who's working for him or anyone who's worked for him, there seems to be this incredible admiration and loyalty to him that must come out of his leadership. Can you define what makes Senator Berger such a unique leader in this way? I think there's a ton. Um, in a vacuum, I think that he is, and I know to maybe even a lot of the listeners, he is Darth Vader. He's like the public enemy number one for the opposite side. But um, I think even if you asked a lot of Democratic legislators that have served with him for a while, they'd have similar answers. He is humble to a fault. He has the utmost trust and respect and like appreciation for every staff member. And so he, he gives you way more responsibility than you deserve. He, he trusts you way more than a, you know, a 20-year legislator ever should trust a 22-year-old or whatever it is, um, which is a weird feeling at that point, right? You just get out of college and you get this all-powerful person like, yeah, you think that's a good idea? Let's do it. It's like, whoa. I think that the, the loyalty from everybody just comes from from him. He is, he's not what your typical caricature of a politician would be. He's quiet. He just listens a lot. Um, he's, he's a simple, simple person. And so, I mean, he, he's got a good heart and he, uh, he, he cares more about his staff and the other members than anyone would ever know. And I think that once you, once you're on the team, you feel that. And I don't, again, I've never worked for anybody else. That's hard for me to say, but I know that it's a very different thing. And I know that even when folks have left and gone to work somewhere else, you talk to them after the fact, it's like, wow, I, I don't miss the work. I don't miss this. I don't miss that. I miss Sandberger every day or talking to him and having him kind of be the one leading. And I think on a pure legislative leadership front, uh, I think it carries over too. I know that there's always the, you know, the Senate rule, you know, iron fist over in the Senate. Burger rules everything. Burger makes all the calls. It's the amount of meetings that I've sat in where someone's asked him a policy position. And he goes, well, can't answer that. I need to go talk to the chairs of blank, blank and blank. And whatever they say is what we'll do. And it's he does lean on everyone from policy matter experts to the staff, to the members, to everybody. And I think that that's what makes the, the loyalty is he doesn't, he doesn't really make that many decisions in a, in a vacuum and kind of force it down. He does seek out everyone's opinion and he, he trusts it and he runs with it. So turning from policy to politics, let's start at the beginning. What's the hardest part about recruiting candidates or quality candidates maybe? I think that it has been an evolving thing. Um, I think that this past cycle was challenging on the recruitment front because, I mean, every cycle, the, we've changed maps so many times that even when we have general ideas, like, sure, we're going to have a competitive seat in Northern Wake County, we're going to have a competitive seat in Southern Wake County, we, you don't know what the lines are. I mean, people that I talk to that you know expressed interest throughout the year, push comes to shove, we get the maps in October, and it's like, oh, you're one precinct out, we got to go find someone new. Um, so that's been a challenge. Um, the other biggest piece of it is... Um, with the extending sessions when we when we're fighting with the other chamber and it's September or October, um, you make that, you make that phone call to a prospective candidate and they ask for, sorry, how much, uh, what do I get paid? It's like, well, you get, paid, you get paid 13 grand. It's like, all right, um, can I work a full-time job? Like y'all are done by July, right? It's like, well, we're still in right now and it doesn't ever make it easy. Um, so I think that is a challenge right now. I think it's a, 
we, and we've got great candidates and you can always find it. It just takes more, it takes more work and you got to do, you know, you usually don't get a yes the first time around. The other challenge I think for us recruiting, I think you saw it in both the House and the Senate this time, is we all want to recruit a candidate for every seat, whether we can strong Republican toss up or strong Democratic seat. Uh, it has gotten more and more challenging to recruit in some of those seats where um, we don't really stand that strong of a chance. And, you know, to do politics better, uh, kudos to the Democratic side. That's a feat. I mean, mm-hmm. getting that many, it's not easy. And it's that that's a that's a big challenge. And the final piece is um, state legislative stuff. It, it's all tied with the federal politics. I and mean, a lot of times, you know, Senator Berger will go somewhere or Senator you know, Jim Perry or whoever it is will go somewhere. And it's like, oh, you're a congressman. It's like, no, 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 I'm, I'm state level. They're like, oh, is that the House of Representatives? Like they, they have no idea. And so everything's kind of mingled together. And because D.C. is so fiery at all times, it really does turn people off. Um, so I think those together make it challenges but um makes it fun i mean it's it's uh those couple weeks those months of recruitment are nervy times but they're you know they're enjoyable at the end to follow up on that how do you find a candidate or somebody who might be interested take us like behind the curtain on that uh it varies with everything so you start with a when you got a retiring incumbent member um, they will typically have an idea of somebody. They'll bring you one person, and you do give a little bit of deference to them. You want, if they've, you know, Joyce Kravick, uh, she served for a long time. She has had this same individual for a while that she always thought would be phenomenal. And um, obviously, me as the caucus, I'm not going to go out and recruit anybody else at that point. So uh, those instances, that's how it works. They bring us somebody, I mean, we still vet them and go through the process. And if, I don't know how many members are listening to this, but if we think it's bad news, um, we'll figure something out and we'll have to do what we got to do. But um, we do lean on them for that. Uh, other seats, you kind of do the word by mouth game. Um, you have other legislators that know people and, if, you know, you kind of ask them if they've got any thoughts or people to talk to. You try to talk to some of the community leaders and see if they've got any ideas. And you start kind of building out a Rolodex of, of names. And we do our own background work to go see, like, hey, is this a it's just a real person. Um, you know, what is this, what's this person about and get through that process. This year we had a unique one where we, um, so district 18, uh, the Northern Wake seat, which I think is going to be one of the most competitive, maybe two or three states, th- two or three seats in the state. We, we almost kind of sort of cold called her. We had been going through stuff. We had a, we basically had four criteria we were looking for. We were looking up all sorts of stuff online, trying to find something. And my, one of my, people I work with, my partner, Graham Nathan, he was just online somewhere, clicked a button for the Sutherland. It's a wedding venue up in Wake Forest. And he saw a name of a woman and he was like, who's this? Clicked it and was like, oh, that's the, you know, it's like, it's a mom, but oh, she got a daughter. Let's see what this is. And we kind of found it. I went on Facebook, found a mutual friend, Representative Matthew Winslow, mm-hmm. and he made the introduction. And the next thing you know, we were talking and kind of moved quickly, but that's, it kind of happens all sorts of different ways. There's been cold calls, there's been handoffs. Um, you get a lot of people that come knock on your door one day and say, Hey, I'm interested in running. What do you think? It's like, Hey, I just met you. I have no idea, but, um, it, it comes in a lot of different ways. And for listeners, we're talking about the Mary Wills Bodie seat. Yep. Terrence Everett is the Democrat over there. So yeah, you guys see that as a pickup this, this election. Yeah. And I mean, it was going to be, um, without a doubt. And I'm, we might talk about it later, just kind of the Senate map in general, but there are a handful of seats that are going to be very, very competitive. There's kind of three that are right in that middle tier, and that is one of them, um, regardless of if Bodie ran or not again. But yeah. um, with her not running, it makes it 
that much more heightened. We do want to get to that. Before we do, I was talking to one of your members about the role you play as the caucus director. And one of the things that he really likes about you is that you see the entire map and you see how a district may be in Northern Wake County versus a district in New Hanover County versus a district down in Robinson County. You see that not all districts are created equally as far as the ideology. Can you talk about the diversity of republicanism, conservatism that you must be looking for to match up in certain districts? They're all very unique. Um, I think that during every election cycle, we hear Michael Lee tell us how different Wilmington voters are than, you know, more so than anybody, probably 15 times a cycle. And he's not wrong. Um, And you kind of hit the nail on the head with the three examples you gave. So you take Wake County, you take the New Hanover County, and you take the Robinson County seat with Danny Britt. There's probably a 5% uh, crossover of what the the Republican voters in Robinson County care deeply about to what the Republican voters in Wake County care deeply about, and they're just different. In 2022, we had, um, we poll a lot throughout the cycle. We poll kind of start in April and just keep polling all the way through. And we have kind of some standard questions throughout, some on abortion, some on you know, tax policy or whatever it might be. There were districts where, you know, the Wake County seats, you'd poll abortion and you'd poll kind of different questions about it, different messages, and you'd see a very lopsided answer, you know, not towards the, the pro-life side. Then you'd go poll in a Bobby Hannock seat, which was a, on paper a D seat, a seat that leaned a point or two Democratic, and it was a better than 50-50 towards pro-life. And then you go to Robinson County, it's the same way, and it's... It's just they're all very unique. And if you ran the same campaign in each of them, you would probably lose two-thirds of the seats. And so it is. I mean, it's the importance of polling. Um, You know, a poll is not the answer. It's kind of a snapshot in time, and you get trend lines as you move along. But it's very, very, very useful for issues, for message testing, for all those different things. And, yeah, they're they're all very unique. The the people, I mean, even in our own caucus, even, even safe Republican seats, they are dramatically different. You talk to... I mean, you look at Iredale County and then compare it to a county way out west. Uh, the Republicans there are dramatically different. So it's, it's unique. Um, and you got to balance a lot of things. But at the end of the day, I have learned that the policy implications of things that we do have changed a little bit. I, I don't think policy matters as much to some voters anymore as it used to. And I mm-hmm. think it's because we're so polarized nowadays that it's you're on your team and you're on your team no matter what, unless it's on a couple issues that pop up once a year. Years ago, I had Majority Leader John Bell tell me, what keeps him up at night is thinking about what his weakest member, how he or she fares on a certain vote. You're saying that it's less important now that well, vote, uh, Republicans are just going to go vote Republican, Democrats vote Democrat? Or? For the most part, yeah. I think that those votes do, I mean, they affect the persuadable voters. So, I mean, a Wake County seat, yeah, like a gun issue, that might have more of a bounce than other things. It's more for, like, I don't think that the votes we take necessarily impact us dramatically with our base as much as they once did. I do yes, think that there's local issues that cause controversies. I mean, we saw it this past year with plenty of small things that local issues popped up and flared up and they, they caused, uh, if nothing else, some noise, but those votes, those things, that's all down to persuadable voters. And I, I think, yeah, if we've got a, if you've got a lane, if you've got a, if you've got a bill that, you know, maybe Democrats propose and it's something that we know is going to poll well, we'll go attack them on that. And that hurts with those subset of voters. But I just, I don't think it does as much as it once did with your base. So when you're polling during the year, do you find that the further away from Raleigh that you are, the less people know about what is happening? Or are there districts that are more clued in to what's going on at the state legislature? 
I think that the districts that are always competitive, we don't necessarily, I guess, poll, you know, how tuned in are you to X, Y, and Z. We right. poll like the certain messages, but then the biggest piece you get is the name ID with the members. I won't pick on any member, but let's say we've got a, there's a couple members I can think of that are in seats that they're, they're likely Republicans. We're not going to lose them. We're still going to run a campaign, do some stuff. And we go poll it every year and I go, you know, bring the member in, talk about the poll, teach them through everything. He's like, what the heck do you mean that only 15% of the people in the district know me or, you know, I just did this, just did that. It's like, well, I mean, it is what it is. Then you go pull Michael Lee and he's got like 92% of the people in the district have heard of him. Everyone's got an opinion. Uh, Mm. They either love him or they hate him. And I think that it's the districts that have annual or I guess every other year, super competitive races. They are very tuned in because they get more TV ads than anybody in the state. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of the other places, they're, I think, the like, you know, in Durham, I think the Democratic base is really tuned in. Uh, I think in some of our more uh, rural Republican counties, that that base is really tuned in. We know when people are engaged because Facebook starts popping off, and mm-hmm. we'll get calls from members that they're, I got 27 phone calls on X, Y, or Z, and um, it's usually when something gets a little heightened by the media. And at NNO or WRL, one of them will start it, and then it'll trickle down to a local paper, and it'll blow up, and that's how it goes. We're in campaign season, full force. If you could, Dylan, give us just kind of what is 2024? What are you looking at? What keeps you up at night? Where do you see opportunity? And then the big question, are you guys going to be able to hold a supermajority? I'll start with your last question. I think the answer is yes. Um, I do think we'll hold a supermajority, and I do think we have a an opportunity ahead of us to expand it. Um, we kind of got to see what the environment looks like. We got to know how we're raising um we got to have that that the avenue for it but i I do feel good that we'll hold on to our supermajority what keeps me up at night i don't know um i I don't sleep well anyways maybe just (laughs) work in general but we're gonna have trump on the top of ticket i don't think that's changing and the good news with that is with trump and robinson on the top of ticket the only thing we don't have to worry about is republican turnout and enthusiasm because we're definitely gonna get that and i think that does offer um an opportunity if nothing else because we can go focus on the voters we need to focus on we don't have to worry about really shoring up the base like you have to do in a lot of elections um but it also allows us to kind of i hate using this word and y'all will know why but differentiate ourselves from the um the, the other candidates um i think we kinda, owe them a nickel now that yeah, you said that. <laughs> yeah, maybe, yeah, something like that um but we can we can kind of you know we know the federal politics top ticket's going to be and we can separate ourselves and try to cut through the clutter and uh do things a little differently my biggest question i guess about the cycle and the electorate as a whole is are we going to get more of 2016 trump for the Republican side, uh, 2016 Trump or 2020 Trump? Are we going to get a Trump that's competitive in suburban areas and that's competitive with um, you know, different college-educated voters? Or are we going to get more of a 2020 Trump where it's running up the score in rural areas um, and kind of not as strong as 16 in some of the other you know, suburban areas? That's my biggest question, and I don't know. Uh, you know, you look at all the polling from every state across the country. I think a month ago there was... 25 polls in a row that Trump was up four and five in Michigan and Pennsylvania and Nevada. And I don't buy any of that. I think that there's a good chance if I went through all that polling that you'd see that there's a bunch of Democrats that said they're not, you know, they haven't fully supported Biden yet and they'll come home. It's going to be a really competitive election. I think the state's still pink. Um, We still lean at least a point Republican. You know, you look at judicial races, we've won, I think, all of them back to 20, starting in 2020. We haven't lost a U.S. Senate seat since before I worked in politics. Um, governor's always been a tough one, but we've got the bones of the state lean right, and they're, you know, it's a pink state. So that's 
we know that's there. Um, I just, the, the Biden versus Trump is going to be a unique animal. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't, I have no idea what, what they're going to campaign about the entire time. I have no idea what Biden's going to campaign about. And I think that's one of the biggest questions I got too, is what is his message? Is it just the democracy is on the docket stuff and, you know, talking about January 6th or is it more of his accomplishments or I, I don't know. And I don't know what that means for kind of what they're going to do on North Carolina. I've heard the Democrats say that they're prioritizing us and they're, you know, putting in the ground game, they're spending money and all those different things. And I think we've heard that each cycle for the past four years and sometimes it materialized, sometimes it didn't. So it's more that nothing really keeps me up and I just got questions that mm-hmm. we won't really know until August. I guess the first cycle I probably would have been, you know, back in 2020, I would have been worried every night all the way up and last cycle, you know, halfway worried. And now it's just like, oh, we'll find out later. A lot of water cooler talk this year I've noticed is around the black vote that the black vote is not necessarily staying with the Democratic Party in 2024. There's estimates that 15% of the black vote could bail on the Democratic Party and go Republican. That becomes a factor with Trump as president. He seems to be picking up black male voters. Add in, in North Carolina, we will have a a black nominee for the Republicans uh, for governor. Does that come into your modeling at all as you're thinking about 24? Yes and no. When we're, when we're polling, we're looking and we're always, you know, we got the cross tabs and you can see kind of what percentages of what subset, demographic, everything. A two point increase of African-American vote towards Republican. I mean, that, that's a big, big number because African-Americans are going to be somewhere between 20 and 22 percent of the voting electorate. And maybe it's up or down. I haven't looked, but that, that's kind of where it's going to fall. And if you think about just what that means as far as a percentage shift away from one party to the other, it's got it's got big, big impact. I don't know. I feel like we've heard since 20, maybe even 16, but 2018, how um, the African-American voting pop population was you know, slowly shifting towards Trump. And I, I don't know that we've seen it necessarily um, in all the numbers, but there, there's definitely been a bump. And if the bump stands, um, it's big. You know, I think if you look at Florida and some other places, too, you've seen a shift in a little bit of voting behavior among Hispanic voters, too. Maybe it gets to a point where there's just a little bit of an increase uh, our way, and that does make a big difference to like somewhere like the state of North Carolina. But I, I don't know how it plays out. I don't know how it affects you know someone like Mark Robinson. I think that's the million dollar question. He's got a message to tell. He's he's not you know your stereotypical Republican messenger on it um, right. for a multitude of reasons, and he's very effective in how he does it. And I mean we'll, we'll see it in November. So you referenced North Carolina being a pink state. My question is, we hear a lot about the unaffiliated voter in North Carolina and how many of them there are. What is that percentage of folks that you would call persuadable and maybe only in a couple districts, but what, how many people are you looking at district to district that are persuadable voters? I've seen the number a handful of different times or different ways. Um, some people say that the pure persuadable voter is as small as about 6% of the entire electorate. Some will say it might be 10% of the entire electorate. Um, you look at a state like North Carolina where, you know, Steve Troxler on the Republican side gets around 2.9 million votes. And then um, Roy Cooper on the Democratic side gets 2.85 million votes. And then there's a, you know, Josh Dobson was the mean um, race in 2020. And he got, now that I'm not looking at it, I'm probably wrong, but like maybe 2.6, 2.7 so there are voters, right? They switch, and um, that's the group. And so, it's not a huge number, um, but it's different for every district too. I mean, we've got districts in 
you know, Bobby Hannig is in the northeast part of the state. Uh, we, we could not have won his seat last time if we only had Republicans, you know, 60 percent of unaffiliateds and the normal small percentage of Democrats. There's once you get outside of kind of the suburban areas and the counties that just surround them too, you know, our winning electorate involves Republicans. It involves uh, older white Democrats. It involves a higher clip of unaffiliated voters. So it kind of all changes. But when you're in Wake County, that number's dramatically different. Then you got to go out and win, you know, 55% of the unaffiliateds, and that's the whole battle because mm-hmm. R's and D's kind of cancel themselves out, and that's the that's the swath. But it's different for each part of the state. Um, but it is a small, small group. There's a chart. You can go find it on maybe it's 538 or something else, and it shows um, over time, you know, I think it's just a... Kind of ties in with this too, but over time, how if you look back, you know, 100 years ago at congressional votes, that you know, there's a scatter scatter chart with a bunch of dots in the middle, and that votes were everywhere. There were Republicans making votes on the Democratic side, Democrats making votes on the Republican side, all that, and then over time, every year it shifts out, and now it's there's nothing in the middle, right. and that that kind of has happened with unaffiliated voters too. I mean, 90 percent of them have a firmly held belief in a team that they're with. They're just unaffiliated for purposes of having that U next to their name. So, Dylan, let's talk about you. And you said you don't sleep much. <laughs> I imagine you're looking at 2024. I imagine this is not the year for you to get much sleep. But let's, what do you do besides politics and following the General Assembly and all the things going on in the political world? I'd be lying if I didn't say golf. Um, <laughs> that's, that's my favorite hobby. Um, and it's what uh, I get a lot of email. I actually got one the other day from or yesterday from a, a consultant that was introducing me to somebody else. And he said, hey, plugging you up with Dylan when he's not, you know, pretending to be a director for the caucus, he's trying to become a golfer. And that's, so that's that's kind of the, the name that I've grabbed there. But that 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 takes up most of the free time if I have any. Other than that, we've got a big family. A lot of it's kind of centralized now. I've got, including step-siblings, but 20-some-odd years, they're all just siblings. We've got seven total, and six of them now are all in the area, so that's pretty fun. Uh, so we get to see them a lot. We've got a lot of friends we hang out with. We're active in our church. When, once the political season gets here, though, it kind of all starts dwindling. So are you from North Carolina? I am. If you had to guess where I'm from, where do you think it would be? I think Raleigh with the non... You should get this right. Are you, are you from Duplin County? Tell from me. Cary. Are you from Cary? <laughs> All right. Well, yeah. Raleigh, Cary. Okay. The Because uh, uh, you don't sound like you're from Kenansville with no, that accent. No, no, the no. non-regional uh, accent, non-accent. Yep, yeah, it's right. definitely in the... Yep. Okay. So I'm from Cary. Uh, my dad was actually born and raised in Cary. Wow. There aren't very many of them. Uh, yeah. when, I, when I was born, Cary was all farmland. Yeah. I mean, all the stuff you see was not there. It's the containment area for relocated Yankees. Yeah. Gotta love them. My stepdad is one of those. So, you know, I got some love for New York too, but uh, yeah, from here. Did you go to high, you went to high school there? Yep. Went to high school at Green Hope. Yeah. Uh, I went to college at ECU. That's where I got my, my real rural, you know, roots. Um, <laughs> learned, learned about real life and now I'm married to someone from Henderson, North Carolina, so Vance County, so we got it all covered. One of your members said, yeah, he went to ECU, but he's an NC State fan. Asked the question how that got to be. Thank you. Um, <laughs> so I, growing up in care, I mean, we were big diehard state fans. We okay. went to every game, basketball, football, everything, and that never left me. Now, going to ECU is a blessing. I still, if ECU plays state, I pull for ECU, no questions asked. Okay. But if, state, if they're not playing, I pull for state for everything. Um, but it removed my NC State bias. So state fans, every single year, it's, this is our year. This year's going to be different. We're, you know, national championship, whatever it is. And going to ECU, I realized, like, no, they're, they're not going to do that. They're, <laughs> they're going to go 8-4. and four, They're going to go 9-3 and three every season. They're going to be really competitive and get a bowl game. And then they're going to lose to Boston College or Wake Forest. And that's right. just how it's going to go. Um, so 
that was good. But yes, I, I, I pull for both. Um, and if you really want to make matters worse because of my stepdad and his Syracuse uh, mm-hmm. hometown, I, I pull for Syracuse basketball too. So mm-hmm. I got a nice little hodgepodge. All right. But I dislike Carolina, so I got that. That's like the one, <laughs> that's the one tried and true. Yeah. All right, good. I bet your members really like that. The I mean, what? you know. Third of them that went to Carolina? There's way too many. <laughs> it's incredible. There's way too many. Yeah, Senator Johnson listens to this podcast. Good. <laughs> there are too many of them. I mean, it's incredible. We need some more East Carolina folks in here. Right. All right. You know the magic wand question. Mm-hmm. If you had a magic wand and you could change something in our politics today, what would it be? So I tried to think about this. And I tried to think like, all right, what's something unique? Someone's not, something that no one's ever said, you know? And all I kept coming up with were funny answers that were not doing politics better. It was just so selfish. <laughs> like, oh, that would make my life a lot easier. So um, I was going to go the, you know, pay the legislators more angle, but that's been used a couple of times. So my true one that I've, probably annoyed people saying so much over the last couple of years. Um, but if I had a magic wand, I would want a bipartisan state board of elections. Hmm. And I mean that. And I think that it dates back before 2020, but, um, I think that it would make life a lot smoother. And I don't think that it's a, you know, I think one of the biggest critiques on the bipartisan board is that if there's a stalemate, you know, what happens mm-hmm. and could log jam all this stuff. And like, I, I think that's, part of the solution, not the bug. Like if there's something that half the you know board doesn't want to do for political reasons and the other half does, probably shouldn't do it. Mm-hmm. You know? um, I think that what my counterpart in the house is going through this past week um, with the Rockingham County Board of Elections and the State Board of Elections is kind of another decent example about why there should be a bipartisan board and every single decision that a county or a state board makes should not come down to three two-partisan lines. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that it would solve a lot of issues. I think that it would make um, the board, uh, and I think it would just make our elections administered in a way that made everyone feel comfortable, and it would solve a lot of headaches for people that are unnecessary. So that's my, I'm sticking to it. Yeah. I don't follow the state board of elections that closely. Just Because you have a life. (laughs) (laughs) What hits the paper, the insider, is it one of those things where they agree on 90%, kind of like the General Assembly, but the 10%, it's really... Those, yeah, those kinds right. of issues. And, and 2020 got a heightened. I mean, you, you you guys probably remember the, you know, I think we were framing it the collusive settlement. Yeah. Um, that was a big deal. I mean, that basically, we passed a bipartisan, very bipartisan legislature um, set of rules for how to deal with elections during COVID and then got sued after the fact. And the board entered into an agreement with the plaintiff's attorneys and didn't engage us. And, you know, it's important to remember the state board of elections gets their powers from the legislature they don't get to create those and so those instances and things like that not only would you have the voting population feel a lot better and not be able to say anything you know or complain about stuff but they would i think we just make lives run a lot smoother and we would get a lot better outcomes out of it now tell us why you would never work for the house republican caucus (laughs) honestly because they have so many members I can barely deal with 30 and then I got to pray for Steven because he's got 72 members to deal with in day in, day out. And I always think my recruiting cycle's bad. And then I count his seats yeah. and it's, oh, so that's all I got. I won't say anything else. Yeah. I love them all. They're great people. <laughs> yeah. We understand. Well, Dylan Watts, we appreciate everything you're doing in North Carolina politics. You certainly know how to do politics better. Thank you for being on the podcast today. Thank y'all for having me. 
The Do Politics Better podcast is sponsored by the North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association. Beer and wine distributors in North Carolina are family-owned companies that directly employ more than 5,600 men and women across the state. The North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association works with the General Assembly to develop alcohol policies that ensure fairness in a competitive marketplace and promote responsible behavior. Visit the North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association at ncbeerwine.com for more information. Absolutely loved this conversation with Dylan Watts. What a talented guy he is. And, you know, we said earlier this year that we are going to bring you during this campaign season uh, folks who work on the campaign side. So we've had the executive director of the Democratic Party. Uh, Dylan, of course, works for the Republican Party on the Senate side on directing their caucus. We're going to bring uh, a campaign manager on a future podcast and really just give you an idea of how politics works from the inside. Hey, Dylan, thank you for being on the podcast this week. What a great conversation. Tweet of the week. The Tweet of the Week is sponsored by the North Carolina Pork Council, representing hog farmers around the state working hard to do agriculture better. Today, hog farms are reducing their carbon footprint by covering lagoons, reducing emissions, and generating renewable natural gas. To learn more, visit ncpork.org. This week's Tweet of the Week is actually a response, but it is from Nathan Babcock. He's at Nathan Babcock on Twitter, and it's kind of a fight between Stephen Wiley and Joseph Gibson, who is that guy running in Rockingham County that they were trying to get removed from the ballot. The alleged neo-Nazi? Yeah, so Stephen Wiley and Joseph Gibson are arguing back and forth. If you'd like to see that argument, look to X. But Nathan's response is, when someone tells you to spend less time running background checks and pay attention someplace else, you should definitely run a background check. <laughs> and that's because Joseph Gibson told Stephen Wiley, Maybe you should spend less time running my running background checks on our citizens and pay more attention someplace else. Yeah, nothing to see here. Yeah, stop looking at me. <laughs> Quit bringing up the past. <laughs> <laughs> Let's look to the future. Yeah. I don't live there anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I've moved on. Well, it goes with my theory. If you've got to tell me you are something, like I'm not a criminal. <laughs> right. <laughs> so... While I chose Nathan Babcock's tweet for Tweet of the Week, there is also a viral tweet right now that is a picture of Patrick Mahomes shirtless. Have you seen it? You brought it up at lunch. Uh, Of course, for those of you living under a rock, this is uh, Taylor Swift's boyfriend's quarterback for the Kansas City Chiefs, uh, Patrick Mahomes. And Patrick Mahomes tweeted, yo, why do they have to do me like that? Hashtag dad bod season. So with now that you know that it's dad bod season, are you changing your fitness habits? No, I would love to look like Patrick Mahomes, even though everyone's panning him. It makes me even more embarrassed about my body because they look at this body, which is pretty fit. And people are saying, oh, my God, fatty patty, right? That's what people are saying. Yeah, there is, there is an account now called fatty patty, <laughs> but full name is Patrick Mahomes. <laughs> okay. 
<laughs> so I look at that and I'm like, you think this guy's fat? Let me take my shirt off. So no, I'm sticking to my routine and really we shouldn't be fat shaming anybody, but especially this guy, professional athlete, he looks fine. He looks great. Somebody said he's a Popeye's biscuit away from being a tight end. <laughs> but, you, you know, it does bring up, I don't know, do, do, do women have to go through this? You know, I played sports all my life. The big anxiety men have, or I should say boys have, and that is changing clothes, being naked, being shirtless. What do you mean in do women room? go through this? You mean do women go through the fact that every day people criticize our bodies? I don't Are you cr- serious right now? I don't Are you serious? I don't know what any of this is about because I don't criticize women's bodies. I'm just saying when I see someone taking a photograph of a man in a locker room, it takes me back to high school or middle school. You know, you're sitting there in the seventh grade. You have this pale white chest with no hair. And then you're next to a guy who has a full rug of hair on his chest and other places too, I might add. And you're getting into the shower and you just feel so insignificant. Thank goodness I didn't grow up with these cell phones because someone would take a picture and say, look at this little, this little pipsqueak who's... Did you beat that guy in the presidential (laughs) physical fitness test? That guy guy could do like one arm pull-ups. Yeah, and with a cigarette dangling from his mouth. You were just dipping. I was just dipping. (laughs) Stunting my growth. Spitting your tobacco on his foot. (laughs) (laughs) Little 13-year-old dipping. Yeah, that's why I'm so short. My growth is stunted. I was drinking coffee and dipping. Our FFA room was like the place to go dip. It was, but it was also the place we had um, a petting zoo where everyone <laughs> just brought their own animals. So, like, school. if you were a turkey farmer, you just brought a couple turkeys to this place at school. There was a room for this. Yeah, there's also a room to dip. Like, you just can't dip anywhere. Well, it was just like you know where you would go to I dip. I don't know. I. You know I didn't do any of this sort lots of thing. Of, lots of questions. Wish you had okay. more answers for me, but go ahead. Did you have ride a tractor to school day? No, we did not. Oh, we, we did. did not. We did not. I once served someone an ice cream cone who came through the drive-thru at the Dairy D on a horse. <laughs> 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 but our car washes often used people to take their farm animals there and spray them off if they need a good wash. Man, what a life there, and... Southern Illinois. Yeah, anyway. You get what I'm saying, though. Boys having to be naked in a locker room can be very traumatizing. Like playing shirts and skins in basketball. No one wanted to be the team that was skins. You Uh know, just just bird chest and bellies. I I always think of, like, boys just being, like, proud to take their shirts off. I don't know. Boys aren't like that. We have body image problems, too. We're under a lot of pressure to look good. I mean, look at Patrick Mahomes, what they're doing to this guy. Oh, yeah, that poor man. (laughs) Poor man. (laughs) Gosh. Yeah. I feel bad for him. Yeah, for all of us who are north of Jason Kelsey, uh, you know, we don't want. We feel bad for guys like I don't Patrick. Think you're Mahomes. north of Jason Kelsey. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm north of him. He's. You see him with his shirt off last week. He looked great without his shirt off. And he was proud. He didn't seem to mind. Yeah. But see, the difference was everybody was celebrating him with a shirt off. Yeah. 
and the internet's trolling Patrick Mahomes. When make you, it make sense. <laughs> when you go to the gym, do women just hang out naked talking to each other? No, but I don't go to the YMCA. I think that's more of a YMCA old people thing, isn't it? It is a YMCA problem. Once you get past the age of <laughs> 70, you're naked. <laughs> I mean, men just sit there and have conversations about, well, I, you know, we went downtown Cary last week and we checked out the new restaurants, but naked, having these conversations thinking nothing of it and there's nothing to be proud of in this nudity zero it's let me just put it this way i'm not going to be graphic on this podcast it must be very very cold in that locker room (laughs) i can't relate to that yeah the only feeling i have about that is one time when i walked outside and my dad just looked at me and said you need to start wearing a bra (laughs) 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 and i was mortified (laughs) We are heavy into campaign season and we look forward to next week. As always, if you have any races you want us to cover, send those our way. Folks have been very generous with sending us races. So we do have a few lined up, but we're happy to look into whatever primary or general election race you'd like us to take a look at. We will talk to you next week. But until then, please remember to do politics better.